Well, this morning we're going to finish up our series that we've been in in Daniel. We've been uh, looking at Daniel chapters uh, 1 through 6. This morning we're at Daniel 6. And, um, and it's really been really interesting. I tell you, you know, I, we decided to, to study this a while ago, and I knew it was relevant to this challenge of living you know, in the den of, of a hostile culture. But I tell you, as we've gotten into it, it's incredibly relevant to what we're facing right now as a culture with the threat of the coronavirus. So again, we're looking at one of the most familiar stories, not only in Daniel, but all the Bible, Daniel in the lion's den. So if you have a Bible, please open it up, uh, keep it open. It will help you follow along with us as we dive into the study. But let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank, again, thank you for the privilege that we have to come together this morning, and Father, to be able to dive into your word. I thank you for the things that you're teaching me. I thank you that there's a joy of being able to come to such a familiar, well-known story, and Father, to learn things that I hadn't seen before. I thank you that your word is so rich and so deep. And Father, I thank you for what you're teaching me. I pray now that your spirit would come and speak through me and even in spite of me. Father, help us each to hear what you have for, for us this morning. I pray that your spirit would speak. I pray your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, now we're looking at this, this book and it's just incredibly relevant. Uh, it's talking about, first of all, you know, this idea of living out our faith in a hostile culture, and, and then we're seeing it applies to the challenges that we face today. Now, we're coming to this really familiar story, Daniel in the lion's den, and I want to set the context of where it's at. And the, at the end of chapter 5, you know, Daniel has been taken captive into Babylon, and he's spent now, you know, uh, you know, 60 years in Babylon as a captive under multiple kings. And in chapter 5, there's this, the king there then is Belshazzar. He has this, this, this vision of this hand, and Daniel interprets a dream, and he tells him, okay, this day the kingdom is going to fall, and it does. And what we're told at the end of that, the, you know, literally the kingdom, you know, the, the city was destroyed that day. The king was, was killed. And then we're told that the, uh, the last verse of, uh, you know, 15, uh, or the last verse of chapter 5, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Now, this was, you know, the king of the Medes and the Persians, he received the kingdom. He took over Babylon, being about 62 years old. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. So now here's what's happening. Okay, now uh, Daniel at this point is probably around 80 years old. And, and again, now the kingdom has fallen. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Belshazzar is dead. Uh, Babylon has fallen. And I, what I want you to remember just even in this context is when Daniel was taken captive, he's brought from Jerusalem into Babylon. He's put into their schools. He's taught to think their way. He's taught to live by their values. And, and to some degree, they may not have um, used the words, but they basically said, hey, Jerusalem is conquered. Your temple's been looted. You live in Babylon now. You know, this is, this is the truth that is won. You need to get on the right side of history, as we would say today. Well, what we've got to realize is that in every time, in every culture, especially when you have a, a kingdom that is the conquering kingdom, you know, every culture has their evolution of truth, their perception of what is true. And they will come and they will say, well, no, you've got to understand, you've got to be on the right side of history. This is what's true. But what happened here? It's the same thing that happens throughout history. You see, every time you have every culture throughout history that said, well, we've got it now, we've evolved, we understand truth, every time it ultimately fails. It ultimately falls. So when we look at this story, Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Babylon is dead. Daniel's doing fine. 
And what we're going to see is that his belief in the truth of God, his belief in the truth about the moral teaching of God's word is doing fine. It's still true. It's transcending culture. See, what we've got to realize is the truths that he believed in Jerusalem were just as true in Babylon when nobody believed it, and they were just as true in Persia when nobody believed it. And those kingdoms have fallen, and meanwhile, God's word has stood true because they're still true for us today. Yeah, we may look at that and you say, well, we've got to be on the right side. of No, God's word is the right side of history. And, they're long, and, and thousands of years prove it. it. Systems and thoughts and moralities have come and gone, but God's word stands true throughout them all. It's just as true today as it was then. It's just as true as it was in, 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 uh, in Jerusalem, as it was in Babylon, as it was in Persia, as it in, is in Northeast Ohio. Now, as I've dug into these whole parts of, of uh, Daniel, one of the things that I realize is that, is that it's real natural for us to study the Bible and to chop it up into chapters and see each story as, as, um, as, as, as separate. But I've realized that in a lot of ways, there's a flow throughout Daniel, especially if you look at these last three chapters, four, five, and six. There's a flow. They're all dealing with actually a very similar theme. They're all dealing with the question of what is the foundation of your life? What is the nature and quality of the foundation? Because sooner or later, we're all going to face a crisis. And when we face a crisis, the foundation of our lives will always be revealed by that crisis. Think about it, both Daniel 4 and 5 tell the story of kings who had built their lives on the wrong foundation and then had their lives upended by a crisis. In Daniel 4, the king was Nebuchadnezzar and he went through an incredible crisis and he let God teach him and humble him in the middle of that crisis. He learned where he went wrong, he repented, he turned to God and we're told that at the end of the story that God restored him. Then we go to Daniel 5 and now the king is a guy named Belshazzar. And he likewise faced a crisis. Only in his crisis, it didn't only expose his pride, but it also exposed his unwillingness to learn, his unwillingness to in any way to ever surrender to God. And at the end, he was destroyed by the crisis. Now, here's what I want you to realize. Daniel 6 is a continuation of that theme. You see, because Daniel 6 is about Daniel facing a major crisis. It's not, okay, well, you have the ungodly face the crisis and the godly don't. No, we all face the crisis. And here you have Daniel face the major crisis, and the question is, how is he going to deal with it? You see, these chapters together really are teaching the idea that Jesus taught at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In, in Matthew 7, in wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the rains, or floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, what Jesus is saying is the question isn't if the storms will come. The storms will come. They're going to come to all of us. The question is what will happen to our lives when the storms come? When they come, what is the foundation that our life is built upon? Because the storms will always expose the true nature of that foundation. If our lives are built on the rock of God's word and the rock of who Jesus Christ is, on the rock of his truth, then what's going to happen is the storms will come and it's going to be hard. It's still going to beat against us. It's going to be painful, but we're going to stand even through the storm. But then he continues because not everyone builds on that foundation. He continues, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them 
will be like a foolish man. It's not the people who don't know him. It's the people who are here and they don't do it. But they're like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now what he's saying is that if we build our lives on the wisdom of the world, it's like building our house on the foundation of sand. Now notice that the only difference that you can tell between these two houses are when the, when the rains come. You know, in good times, they look the same. They both look solid. They both look strong. But it's only when the storms come can you tell the difference. Now, you might think, well, nobody's actually stupid enough to build their house on sand. Well, in reality, some people are. I mean, the fact is, you have some people that will look at this and they say, man, I want this house right on the beach. And so they build it where people say, well, you shouldn't be there. And, and in the short run, they look smarter than everyone else. It's like, yeah, you reclaim that land. You, boy, you have great beachfront property. That's awesome. But the fact is, one day that big hurricane's going to come in. That major storm's going to come in, and it's going to eat away at the beach line. And next thing you know, the whole thing collapses. It gives way. It falls apart. And unfortunately, only a few people will do this, but way too many people do that exact same thing with our lives. You know, we build our lives on on the world's wisdom, on the sand. And it looks good for a while. In fact, in the short run, it might look like, man, you're enjoying life even more. But the storms are going to come. My friends, even in this time, I have to ask this question. We are in the middle of a storm. What is the storm revealing about the nature of your foundation? Is your life standing strong? Yeah, it's hard. Is it standing or is it, is it falling apart? Now, we're going to see how this plays out in in Daniel. Let's go to Daniel 6, and we're going to see, I'm going to, I'm going to pick a different word to talk about this foundation, about the nature of the foundation, and this is the word integrity. And we're going to see here the importance of integrity in our lives. You see, the idea is, is integrity is part of foundation. This rock is solid. It's a, it's a foundation of integrity. But the integrity is something even deeper. Daniel's life is defined by integrity both in the sense that he showed great integrity in his life, in his moral character, and in times, the fact that he showed integrity that in the major crises, the storm revealed there was an incredible integrity in the foundation. And these things are related. Now, what is integrity? If, even if you look up in the dictionary, uh, uh, Merriam-Webster, you define it this way. Uh, in, integrity is an unimpaired condition, soundness, something that is unimpaired, that's, that's, you know, that doesn't have any cracks in a sense. It's the state or quality or state of being uh, complete or undivided. It's completeness. So it's the idea of solid, of undivided, of one piece. Um, something that is, lacks integrity could be said it's divided. It's of multiple pieces. Or, or maybe even one way of saying it, it, it has cracks. You know, that when you look at it and you say something that is solid that has no cracks, that's got great integrity. Something that has cracks, well, well that cracks make it unsound. Now, you might take to, let's say, you know, solid objects, and you look at them from the distance, and they look the same. There might be cracks, and could barely tell the difference. But what happens is when you put pressure on both of them, the one that is solid stands, and the one that has cracks breaks apart. And if you put lots of pressure, it literally disintegrates. And even in that word, think of it, disintegrate. What is that? Disintegrity. That you have something of one piece suddenly becomes of many pieces and falls apart. Let me try to even illustrate this. Anybody who's ever studied anything with space travel or watched a movie like Apollo 13, you know that one of the, the things they talk a lot about is the importance of a heat shield uh, for a vehicle re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. 
So the heat shield is something that's at the bottom of the vehicle, and when the vehicle re-enters the Earth's atmosphere at extreme speeds, it creates friction, or friction with the, uh, the atmosphere, and it generates temperatures that they say are, you know, can exceed 1,600 degrees centigrade. Now, the heat shield is made of these ingredients that, are, you know, that withstand heat, that, that don't melt in any way. And when they're put in the right place, and you come into the atmosphere exposing only the heat shield, and it has, you know, when it's perfect, but there's no flaws, it will protect, it will keep the vehicle from burning up. But again, there has to be no flaws, no cracks. If there are any flaws at all, the thing doesn't work. And that was illustrated, actually, in real life on January, or on, on February 1st, 2003. A couple weeks before that, January 16th, the space shuttle Columbia uh, lifted up into orbit. And as it was launched into space, a piece of insulation broke off from one of these fuel tanks, and as it was going, it went down and it hit the side of one of the wings underneath the, the, uh, the heat shield. And it caused what people hoped were just a small degree of damage. We weren't sure. And, but the problem was that even a tiny crack in the heat shield can be a huge problem. And that was illustrated when it returned on February 1st as it seeked, sought to re-enter the atmosphere of Earth. Uh, the damage caused by just this little crack allowed hot gases to penetrate through the heat shield and destroy the integrity of the wing structure to the point where the spacecraft became unstable and then ultimately disintegrated and, and just you know, burst apart, instantly killing all seven crew members. Now you look at that and you say, what's the principle? Integrity is vital. You see, even a little crack, even uh, the, the crack of, the, of integrity in our lives, when the pressure is put on, when the heat is put on, it could cause a disaster. Now, what I want you to see is in the life of Daniel, he had the integrity. The integrity to stand strong under pressure, to stand strong in temptation. The integrity to be able to, to stand consistent even in trial and crisis. And again, those things are all related. Now, let's see how these play out. Daniel, again, Daniel 6, we're going to see that he had the integrity to withstand the external pressure of compromise. Again, if you have your Bibles, look to verse 1. It pleased Darius, this is the king, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Now what's happened is Darius has taken over uh, the administration of Babylon. This was a huge empire. And as he's taken it over, you know, one guy isn't going to oversee it all. So what he does is, is what we're seeing is the description of kind of uh, their administrative plan. So he gets 120 called satraps, satraps he was government officials. And some were likely like governors that had... Uh, responsibility over an area. Some were almost certainly other administrative roles that they were overseeing aspects of the government. And, and, and again, Darius knows that 120 people are in a lot for one guy to oversee. So what he does is we read in verse 2 uh, that over them he set three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps would give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Now, you know, here's what you see. There's, he points three people. They each are overseeing, and you know, somewhere 35, 45, somewhere in there, average 40 people. And, and they're overseeing and then reporting back to the king. Now, I want you to notice what their key responsibility is. Look what he says here. He wanted to make sure that the king might suffer no loss. See, their key responsibility was that they were dealing with corruption. You know, we talk about government corruption. It's nothing new. You know, America didn't, you know, didn't create it. We struggle with it. But as long as there have been governments, as long as there have been government officials, there have been corruption. 
And it goes way back then. And, and Darius knows that. That's the big problem. So he sets these people out you know, to oversee the corruption. But then we keep that in mind when we read verse 3. Now this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because of an excellent spirit that was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And here's what you need to see. Why did he stand out? Not only is he a good worker, but specifically because of his integrity, because of his honesty. The king said, okay, I want people that are going to try to deal with corruption issues, and, and Daniel's a guy that I can trust. You know, Daniel's a guy that, um, you know, everyone else is, is, is compromising. Everyone else is, is, there's some corruption that people are accepting, but Daniel refused to play the game. And the king loved Daniel's integrity. He loved having someone he could trust that well, but everyone else hated it especially the guys that he's overseeing and the other high officials. They hated it because, hey, that was their game. You know, and they just accepted, you know, part of a little corruption. You know, you know our job is to make sure it's not that bad. But we'll allow a little and, and we'll get the kickbacks. Now, that's what's happening now when we look in verse 4. He says he's going to put Daniel over all of them. Then the high officials and the satraps fought to find a ground against, of complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Now again, remember, the key job was to find corruption. And this is what we've got to understand is what's going on. I, I've got to tell you, I've always understood this to be that, you know, that you had these three guys and the king was going to set one guy over the other, you know, the other two, and they were jealous. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the king likes Daniel more than me and you, so what are we going to do? And, 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 and so that's what I always understood it to be. But that's not what's happening. It's not jealousy. It's the fact is, is that, that he's rooting out corruption, and these guys don't like being exposed. And if the king puts them over these other guys, suddenly in what they're getting away with, they're not going to get away with anymore. Now look at I'll show you in verse 4 where you see this really clearly. See, it's not just the other two high officials that turn against Daniel. Look what it says. It was the high officials and the satraps. See, if it was just jealousy, it would just be the two guys that were mad. But it's not just the two. It's, it's all of them. Why? Because all these other guys are going to the people that, you know, that they're playing the game with, that they're getting kickbacks from. And they're saying, hey, if, if the king puts Daniel over them, the, you know, over us, the game's up. And he's not going to play the game. He's not going to compromise. We're, you know, you're not going to get you know, the, 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 you know, greasing the palms that you're going to get, that you're getting now. And so what they do is they together come and say, okay, we need to get rid of this guy. Now, I want to tell you, there's a great example of integrity, this integrity that's with, able to withstand the external pressure of compromise. He's living in a culture where everyone is doing it. And I'm sure that everybody's telling him, Daniel, this is the way things are done here. You know, that this is, you know, everybody does it. You know, just accept the game, play along. There's tremendous pressure on that. And we still face that. You know, we, there's many of, many of you that go to work, and the fact is there's pressure that, well, this is what you do. Everybody does this. You know, don't rock the boat. I mean, sometimes it's even simple things. You know, everybody kind of fudges the reports. And, and if you don't fudge the reports, you're going to look less productive than everyone else. So... There's a temptation to do that. Something as simple as you know, taking sick days when you're not sick. Well, everybody does that. You know, that's, you know, that's what they mean. And we've got all these sick days, and I haven't been sick, and I might as well take because it's in my contract. And Well, no, there are sick days. And if you're claiming to be sick on days that you're not sick, that's a lack of integrity. Or even in the season where we're working at home, I tell you, it's real natural. It's tempting. It's probably normal, almost expected. You know, 
we don't really work a solid eight hours. It's kind of a little distraction. And, and there may be many of us that are, we're, we're getting our work done, but not as effectively as we used to. Because working out of home, well, we expect that, well, of course, the company expects that we're not going to work as hard. Well, do they? See, again, integrity is something that say, no matter what the external pressure, no matter what everybody else is doing, I'm going I'm to live out to the standard of, of what God expects. I'm a one piece. And my friends, what a great example from Daniel, and what a great challenge from us. We not only was able to have the integrity to withstand the external pressure, but also the integrity to withstand the internal pressure of temptation. Not just of what everyone else is doing, but what he's tempted, you know, kind of in the private moments. Look at again in verse 4 and 5. We read, um, I'm sorry, I just lost my notes here. Um, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, we shall, uh, we shall not find any ground or co- for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So they try to find some charge against him. And what happens is no, no matter how deep they go, they can't find anything. You know, he's a guy that, that has integrity. He, who he was in private was the same as who he was in public. A lot of people have talked about, you know, integrity. One description is it's who you are when no one's looking. You know, are you the same person when no one's looking as you are when everyone's looking? And here's what's happening. It's Daniel, they're saying, okay, let's look deeply. Let's look at all the hidden stuff of his life and what they're finding. He's of one piece. You know, no matter how far down you dig, he's the same guy in private. He's the same guy when no one is looking as he is in public in the court. And and there weren't any cracks in his character. And so what they decide to do is they're saying, well, the only place that, that we see he's out of the norm is that he has this incredible faith of God. And so they tr- decide to attack him there. Now, wouldn't that be great if somebody said, okay, we're going to try to dig up dirt on this person and try to dig up dirt on you? And they said, well, the only thing we can find is his commitment to God. You know, well, we dig deep and, you know, it's like, man, who he is in private is who he is in public, who she is, you know, and, and what we see is the same person. And, and we can't find anything. Man, that's the kind of integrity we long to have. And not only that, where they'd come and say, well, if we're going to attack him, the only place that's out of ordinary is, man, he's totally committed. They're sold out to their faith in Christ. And I want to tell you, even the Bible says that that will at times happen, that there will be times that we will be attacked by the secular culture because they don't understand how, how, why we're so different. So here you have Daniel. They say, let's use your religion against him. So what they do is in verses 6 through 9 is they come up with this law, and they come and they try to sell it to Darius. And this law is, okay, well, um, what we're going to do is we're going to say that nobody can petition or pray to any other leader or any other god for a month. And so they convince Darius of it. Darius signs it. It becomes a law that is set in stone. You can't change it for a month. Now, we don't know for sure why, what the kind of the reasoning of this law is. Uh, you know, some people say it may have been appealing to Darius's ego. I think probably more likely it's this. Remember, Babylon had just been conquered by Persia. And we see that, that in trying to establish this, you know, this system for overseeing this great kingdom of Babylon, Darius now goes and he takes some of the people from Babylon, some of the people that were part of that government, some of the people like Daniel who are from other countries, and he brings them into part of his administration. So you have all these people from, you know, from other loyalties, other histories that are part of the government. And when that's the case, 
arguably, there would be some risk that some of those people really wouldn't be that loyal to Persia. Some of these people really have dual loyalties. And I think what, what most people think is probably most likely is these people go to Darius and they say, hey, Darius, you know, you really can't know if everyone really is totally on board with Persia, if everyone's totally on board with you. So here's what you need to do to really get people to prove their loyalty, have this rule that they can't petition anyone else for a month, that, that they have to prove they're totally loyal to you. Now, that's probably what happened. Now, that's the argument that they gave to the king. But their main purpose wasn't trying to prove loyalty. It was mainly to set up Daniel to fall because they knew that he had this commitment to his faith in God that, that if he's told he can't pray, well, well, prayer was a normal part of his life. And so you see in this, he's set up with this, and you see this crisis, but then you also see this integrity that allowed him to stand in the face of, of incredible threat and incredible crisis. We pick up the story again in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, now what is that document? It's this new law that says it's not only illegal to petition or pray to anyone but the king, but it's a law that says, and here's the consequence. If you do so, you're thrown into the lion's den. You know, it's an execution order. So he hears that this is signed, and what do we read? And he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Now, my friends, this is incredible. Here you have Daniel, and he hears this law has been signed. And right away, what does he do? He goes home and he prays. The very thing that he was told he couldn't do was the very thing that he knew he must do in order to survive the situation. Now, it's important to see that Daniel wasn't making a point here. He wasn't trying to just flaunt the law and saying, well, you know, I want to show that you don't have authority over this. No, he didn't have a prayer meeting in the office. He didn't try to make a public spectacle of this in any way. What he did is he went home and he did what he had consistently done for the years before this. It was his regular practice. He's not trying to make a point, but he went home at the same time in the same place, and these people that are trying to set him up know where he prayed and when he prayed. He just went home as he would usually do that. And what he's doing here is that he's saying, okay, I want to honor the authority, but I want to tell you my first loyalty, my first obedience is to God. And he's not flaunting the law, but he's also saying the law is not going to cause me to disobey my God. It was his normal practice. Now, I want you to also see that it says that he normally prayed with his windows open. And again, this was his normal practice. And again, they went after him because they knew that. Now, there are times, you know, that you pray privately, and, and I think that's appropriate. It's not saying that we should always pay, pray publicly, but there's a point here that I think is important. And that is, are we comfortable living out our faith publicly? Or how often do we find ourselves kind of pushing our beliefs and our practice into a corner because we're afraid what other people will think if they see us? Now, there are times that we should close our windows and that our, our worship is private. But the, the fact is, is that it, what, what this means, integrity means we're of one piece. Who we are in private is the same as who we are in public. And that means that when, when we're in public, we should have just the same commitment and openness to talk about our faith as we do in private. I'm going to give an example. Do you pray before your meals? I hope you do. That's a good thing to do. Well, if you pray before your meal at home, when you go out, you should pray before your meal when you're out at a restaurant as well or when you're with other people because that's just what you do. 
that's just who you are. That's, that's what you see. And, and you're not trying to push it on people. You're just being yourself. If you talk about God, you know, privately, if you talk about God on Sunday, if he's important to you Sunday, well, why should we talk about him less on Monday at work or in our, with our friendships? See, we're not trying to be pushy, but the simple point is if God is truly the most important thing in our lives, it should be natural for us to talk about him. See, and that's the issue behind this all. It's ultimately his integrity came from the fact that, that Daniel had a relationship with God. And this relationship was not only the source of his integrity, it was a relationship that was the most important thing, and that's what made it so central. It was the most important thing in his life. It's not that he's being pushy about his faith. It's just that it's natural for all of us, whatever's most important to us, it's natural for us to talk about it. Think about somebody at work. You know, just think about somebody in your mind. All right, if you think about that person, I could say what's most important to them. And if you know them well, you'll probably give an answer. Why? Because you know what they talk about. You know, it's whatever their hobby is, whatever their relationship is, whatever, you know, grandkids or kids, or they talk about those, and, and it's obvious. Because whatever you are thinking about the most, you love the most, it just naturally comes out. Now, let me even illustrate it differently. Let's say we were coworkers or friends, and, and we had known each other for several years, and in all the time that you knew me, you never heard me mention a family. You've never heard me mention my wife or my kids. I don't wear a wedding ring. Uh, even when everyone else talks about family, I never mention it. And then one day, you hear someone else mention that I'm married. And, and you're like, well, wait a second, I've never heard you mention your wife, and why not? And, and if you've, something, if you've known me well, and I've never mentioned my family, you would probably come to the conclusion, probably rightly, that my family isn't really important to me. That, that I never mentioned my wife because I don't have a very good relationship with her. And the fact is, if she's important to me, I'm going to talk about her. It's natural for us to talk about what has greatest importance. And that's not only true of relationships, it's with everything in life. You want to know what's most important to a person? Sit down and talk to them for an hour. Just listen to them. You'll know what's most important because whatever comes out naturally is what they're thinking about. It's what they value. And so whether it's your family, whether it's you know, a single person, they, oh, I met this new person. You got to tell you all about my new love. It's your hobby and, and what you enjoy doing and the latest thing that you're watching. You know, have you watched Tiger King? Have you watched you know, Netflix or, or politics or whatever it is? Whatever you think about it, you can't help but talk about it. And that's what we see in Daniel. What you see in Daniel is the reason that he lived this out is because God was the most important thing to him. And the quality of that relationship was the source of his integrity. Now here's what we have to realize is that that relationship carried him through, but the benefits of that relationship that carried him through were dependent upon the habits of that relationship that he had been living out for years. Now, again, this is true of, of all relationships. Let's apply it to our marriage. Okay, it's interesting in this time of quarantine that people have, have I've read studies where they talk about crime as a whole has gone way down. Nobody's out there to commit crime. The only crime that hasn't is the problem of violence within the home. That's gone way up. And so you look at that and you say, well, that shouldn't be that surprising. Why? Because if you have a bad marriage, if your marriage has been defined by um, you know, not doing the right things, not resolving conflict, if it's really unhealthy. Well, if you lock a bunch of people together and they have a bad relationship, locking them together isn't going to make it better. What it's going to do is it's going to expose the cracks. The heat turns up and it's going to expose the cracks and it's going to start to crumble. It's going to start to fall apart. On the other hand, if you have a good marriage, 
If you're building on a good foundation, if you have good habits, if you're resolving conflict, you're learning together, you're talking together, you know, that you've enjoyed together, and you're together, it's like, man, this is, a, this is an unexpected blessing. I get more time with my family. I get more time with my wife. What a, what a blessing this is. And that's not that there isn't any tension, but there's a blessing because the tension brings out the strengths. All right, now let's talk about Daniel and our relationship with God. See, the law is signed, the crisis comes, and he prays. Why? Because he had habits of relationship. He had a habit of relationship with God where he prayed, where he spent time with God on a daily basis, and it was just natural for him to go back there. It was natural for him to go to this relationship that was at the center of his life because that's where he finds support. Now, I want to tell you, it's natural for all of us at times of crisis to turn to God, to pray. But there are some of us in the midst of this that we're praying and God doesn't, I don't hear God. Where's God? You know, we're, we're having a hard time finding him. My friends, if we're having a hard time finding him, it's maybe because we don't have the habit of that relationship. And the crisis is exposing some of the cracks of, 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 of the relationship we don't have with God. Now, I don't want to tell you that it's, you know, there's no hope because in any of this, it exposes the crack, and you can either just continue to go down the wrong path, or you can say, okay, this is an invitation that I need to fix this. I need to realize that this is the thing that I need, because it's only here where I find you know, security, where I need find where I, what I need. I don't want, not only want to show you that he prayed, but let me point out something else about the prayer. Again, look at verse 10. Look at what it says about the contents of his prayer. It says, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. And that's real interesting. It, he gave thanks. And we have to ask, think about it this realistically. Why did he give thanks? You know, you're sitting there, Daniel, don't you know you're about to lose your job? Daniel, don't you know you're about to lose your life? You're about to get devoured by lions. You know, you, they have this law that people have set you up. You're about to be thrown in the lion's den. And, and you're giving thanks to God? Now he's teaching us something here that is so important, the importance of thanksgiving in our relationship with God. Why do you give thanks to God when your world is collapsing? Why do you, how can you do that when you know you didn't do anything wrong, when you're in, the, you're in trouble and people are lying about you, when, when, when things aren't so uncertain? You see, it's, it's really something about applying our theology, our beliefs. He gave thanks because it's what he needed for his benefit. See, the reason that we give thanks when the world is crying, falling, out, falling apart around us, the reason why this is so important is because it's reminding of ourselves of the truths of what we have to be thankful for. We need to do this because we need to remind ourselves that God is in charge, that we are God's child, that he is our father, that he loves us dearly that he's sovereign over everything that happens. We need to remind ourselves that because that's true, there isn't a thing that happens that doesn't pass through his fingers. And if he allows it to pass through his fingers, it's only because he's allowing it for some good purpose. And if God has a purpose behind it, he wants you to, to remember that, to be thankful. And that's why it says in verses like 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in everything. Now even notice, it says, give thanks in all circumstances. It gives, give thanks in, not for. It's not, we don't give thanks for everything. I mean, it's, you don't give thanks, oh, thank you for the coronavirus. This is wonderful. Thank you, I lost my job. You know, I'm, I'm sick. Thank you. No, that's not what it's saying. There are a lot of things that are terrible that we're not thankful for, but we give thanks 
in everything because there is some, some truth that transcends the circumstances for which we can be thankful. And so here's what it's saying. In the situation, in the worst of situation, I want to be thankful. I am not a victim. I'm not, Daniel, I'm not a victim of these scheming people. God, you aren't taking side surprise. I'm not a victim of whatever happened in China that resulted in this virus. I'm not a victim. No, everything is passing through your hands and you love me. God, I'm thankful not only that, but I'm not in this by myself. God, you're, you joined Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. You joined Daniel in the midst of the lion's den, and you're here with me because your word promises I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's a truth, and God, I'm thankful for that. And God, I give thanks because I know that, that you're allowing this and you're using this to make me a better person. I'm thankful that when this is all said and done, you will be glorified and I will be stronger. God, I'm thankful that the promise of Romans 8.28 is true. It says, and we know that all these things will, and we know for all that love God, all things work together for good. It's not that all things are good, it's that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's true. I'm thankful that God has a plan. I'm thankful that these things don't take God by surprise. Now notice he didn't just give thanks. Because if you go to verse 11, what it says, they caught him making petition and plea before God. He's, he's petitioning, he's pleading. God, I don't understand this. God, get me out of this. But my friends, what we've got to realize is that if you want to know how to pray to God in the midst of great time of worry, then part of that prayer has to be thanksgiving. Now, I, I will tell you, I misunderstood this for years because I'd heard this and I thought, okay, well, part of it's Thanksgiving, so I'd be like, okay, well, let me be thankful and how long do I have to do this and have I done enough things? God, are, is it, are you, th are, you feel like, you know, I, I met your need? Have I done enough Thanksgiving? Now I can get to the real part of the prayer. I, I, that's what I thought for years and that what God taught me, it's not that God needs this. It's not that God wants me to just jump through hoops. The reason we do it is because I need it. I need it. We need to be thankful because in being thankful, we remind our ourselves of the truths that we have to be thankful for. And it was this kind of thankfulness, this relationship that helped him find peace in the lion's den. Now again, here's why I want to come back to it. It's all about relationship. It is about relationship. It's the, you know, the root, the source of our, our integrity, the integrity to live uh, with, with consistent morals, to withstand pressure, to the integrity of a foundation, my friends, you may be here and you say, you know, you're listening and you're like, man, I, but I don't have that. I've walked away from God. I haven't thought about God. I want you to realize that this is an invitation. You may not have that relationship. Easter is all about the fact that God has come down to pursue a relationship with us, that Jesus Christ came and he lived the life that we couldn't live and then he died on the cross and on the cross he takes our sin, he takes our punishment for our sin, he dies for us. He defeats sin and death, and he invites all who would believe in him to say, God, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. And God takes our sin. He puts it on Jesus. He give, forgives us. And through that, we have relationship with God through Jesus Christ. My friends, if you don't have that relationship with God, this isn't like, well, you're, you know, you're, you're helpless. You're, no, this is an invitation. You think of even Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't have it. He went through the trial, and God brought, it, brought him to it. He learned, and God restored him. Friends, no matter where you're at, God invites us to that relationship. If you're there and you've wandered away from it and the cracks are showing, God's inviting you back to that relationship. That's the source of the integrity, the peace that we need. Because if we get it, we discover this peace, how to have peace in the midst of the lion's den. 
let's go back to the story. In verses 12 through 15, these men bring this accusation against Daniel. Daniel's broken the law. The king knows he's set up. He, he, and he's, he, he's actually mad because he knows that this guy that I'm about to put over these corrupt guys, they've set up and they've tricked me to write this law. And the king, we're told, wants to save Daniel. But the nature of the law was once it's written, he couldn't change it himself. So we're told then in verse 16 that the king uh, commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast in the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. That's his desire. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So then he's up all night. He's worrying. The next morning, at the break of dawn, he rises, and he went to haste to the lion's den. In verse 20, he came near the den where, the lion, where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lion's? What he's saying is, Daniel, you know, I tried everything I could. I couldn't help you. You know, the only hope was God. My friends, we've got to realize that there will be times that God will put us in situations where no person can fix it. And the reason that God will put us in situations that no person can fix it is he doesn't want any person to fix it. That he puts us in positions where our only hope is the intervention of a living God. That he's trying to drive us out of our self-reliance or reliance on, on our strategy and say, there are times that it's going to be a crisis, it's going to be hard, but do you believe that there's this God that can, serve, that can save you, that this God you can rely on? Look at even Daniel's response in verse 20. He says, my God, now notice he's not talking about somebody else's God. It's not the idea of God. God, no, my God, the one who I'm in relationship with, my God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. My God sent his angel. Most people believe it's a reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, God himself coming and being there. He's saying, King, you stayed up all night, you know, but I didn't, I'm okay. Now, what we're seeing is that he had peace. Why? Because he understood that it's in having faith that both God is in the den and in control. That number one, this is theology that, that he understood that God was there. I don't know if he saw the, the, you know, the angel, but he knew. He knew that God was there with him. It's interesting, even Darius was up all night, was Daniel? Or did he sleep? It's interesting, we're told Darius was up all night, we're not told about Daniel. I think it means that he slept. Why? Because he's saying, hey, God's here, he's up all night, why do, I, why do both of us have to stay awake? And I really think that's what's going on. See, here's what happens. In this time, you know what we, we think we need is we think we need answers. We have all these worries, and we have these questions and all these things. What's going to happen here? When's this going to have the, you know, you know, when's this going to be lifted? What's going to happen to you know the the economy? And when we're going to find a, a you know some kind of cure? And and here's what we need to realize. You know what we need the most isn't the answers to those questions. What we really need is confidence in the one who does. And he won't always give us the answers, but if we have confidence in the one who does, that's all we need. Let me even give you a story that where God drove this home to me. We have four kids, uh, our two oldest girls and then twin boys. And when Sandy was pregnant with the, um, with the boys, our girls were just four and two. I mean, this is a, a picture when they were real young. And, uh, and, and at the time, you know, I was, I was 
because, you know, Sandy's pregnant. I'm working 50-plus hours a week, a full-time job. I'm in the process of trying to finish my dissertation. So I'm just, just torn apart. Sandy's dealing with raising these two little kids with the limitations of pregnancy. And, and then it became more complicated with twins. They put her on partial bed rest for the last month, month and a half. And so we're just, you know, we're just overwhelmed. Now, in this time, our oldest, Tiffany here, she was four years old, and she started to check on us. You know, she would, every night, she'd say, did you lock the doors? Did you put the food away? Did you do this? Did you do... And we thought at first it was cute. We're, you know, a responsible little girl. And then someone pointed out, she's not... It's, no, you misunderstand it. What's really happening isn't responsibility. What's really happening is she's worried. She's looking at you guys, and she's thinking, it's obvious these guys don't have it together. They don't know what's going on. They're overwhelmed. So as a four-year-old here, let me come behind them and, and make sure that I take care of things that they're dropping. And that was, that's what was happening. We weren't raising a responsible little girl. We were raising a very stressed-out, worried little girl. And so these people advised us that when she asked questions, you know, did you lock the door? We shouldn't tell her, oh, yes, we have, or, you know, we did that. They said, what you need to do is every time she asks a question, your answer has to be, you know what, that's mom and dad's responsibility. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. You rest. And that's what we did. And within a brief period of time, she stopped asking questions. She actually calmed down. My friends, this is exactly what God is trying to teach us. You see, we come and we're like, God, what are you going to do? Tell me the answer. You know, solve the problems. What's going to happen here? And God says, you know what, I'm not going to give you the answer. All you need to know is this is daddy's job. I'm here in the den. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to lock the door. I'm going to take care of the virus. I'm going to take care of the economy. I've got it. And I'm not going to give you the answer. You just have to trust me. You just have to rest in me. And as much as we long for the, question, the answers to all the questions, that's not what we really need. What we need is confidence and trust in a living God who has all the answers. And just like I told my daughter, he's trying to tell us, don't worry about it. Daddy's got it. Just trust me. Just rest. See, not only was it, was it that rest in the presence and the confidence of God, but also trust in the fact that God will establish truth and bring justice. You know, because Daniel hears he's being accused of things that he didn't do. He's being thrown in prison, and these, these guys, the corrupt guys, are getting away with it. And if you read the end of the story, what happens is the king believes Daniel. Daniel says, I didn't do it. king believes him. And the guys that set him up, they're the ones thrown in the lion's den. And you know Why? Because God establishes in time. There might be times where it looks like, but God, don't you understand what's going on? Truth and time go hand in hand. God establishes justice. I love what, he's, what uh, Romans says, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Who's going to do a better job establishing the truth of what happened, the truth of your name? You or God? I think God's going to do better. Who's going to do a better job really establishing justice? I think God, well, theologically, that's our answer, but practically, you know what the real answer is? I think God, but I don't see him doing it. So since he's not, here, God, let me help you. Here, let me take it from you because I don't see it happening. And my friends, God will establish justice. God will establish truth. We have a God who is in charge, that is, that is in control, that loves us. And in that relationship we have in him, the question is, can you rest? What is, what's being revealed about that foundation? What is God inviting you to? My friends, I hope that you have that relationship, you're pursuing it, and that in that, that you're pursuing the trust in a living God in the midst of it all, to recognize if we don't have all the answers, we don't, we don't know how it's all going to play out, but you know what? 
If God's really in charge, we don't need the answers. We need trust and confidence in the one who does.